We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, so if you want to grab your Bibles and find Mark 14. While you do, uh, let me uh, ask for some crowd participation a little early on this morning, but uh, by raise of hand, how many of you have seen the Star Wars movies, whether one or multiple? Probably most of all. I won't embarrass you if you haven't seen that many other hands raised. Um, uh, I, I want to just say that we're going to begin with a Star Wars illustration. I'm sorry, uh, I am a nerd, and I just am going to live that way. So, uh, I, I loved those movies growing up. Star Wars was my jam. Um, and I remember growing up and watching Star Wars just over and over and over again. As a kid, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. A lot of afternoons in the summertime, we'd go outside, we'd go play in the pool, it would start raining, you'd come inside turn on the Star Wars movie and just sort of go to another galactic part of the empire and it was great. I probably saw those movies with my brothers and sisters more times than I can count. And then something amazing happened when I was nine years old and that's that they came out with, that they were going to do the three movies leading up to the ones from the 70s and 80s. So of course I was like, oh my gosh, my life has been made, this is amazing. Um, We won't get into opinions about those three prequels, but as a nine-year-old, I was really fired up, and I remember going as a nine-year-old to the movie theater and seeing The Phantom Menace. Again, won't get into all of the opinions about it. I I still kind of like it. It's okay. Um, But I remember seeing Anakin Skywalker, and if you haven't seen the movie, there's going to be some spoilers here, but it's been like 40 years since the originals came out, so you've had enough time by now to watch them. That's on you. But when, when that movie came out, I remember seeing Anakin Skywalker in that movie, The Phantom Menace, and he's just this little boy. And I was like, man, this is so cool, but tragic at the same time. Of course, a few years later, the second movie came out, Attack of the Clones, and then finally in 2005, I was 15 by then, the third movie came out. And uh, of course, that movie begins with Anakin Skywalker being Anakin Skywalker. Um, but the movie ends with Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader. And I remember, that's the big spoiler, so if you didn't know that, sorry. But I remember during that movie, I watched it, and I I knew I had seen these, the four, five, and six, like hundreds of times it seemed like. And I remember watching that movie and thinking to myself, you know, maybe the writers will just do something different. I've known this kid now for years, this little Anakin Skywalker, he was such a cute little kid. How can he turn into this villain of a person in Darth Vader? You know, how can this happen? I remember just watching that movie thinking like, maybe, maybe somehow they're going to change it, they'll rewrite history, and we'll do something different. Like, I didn't want it to happen. And if you went and saw the movie, I'm sure you probably felt the same way, that how could this kid that you sort of came to grow to love after a while become this villain? Um, but of course, as the movie went on, uh, everything that we knew would happen, happened, And by the end of the movie, Anakin is no longer Anakin, but he is Darth Vader. And as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, I have similar feelings. I think most of us here know what's going to happen. We're not going to be surprised for for most of us when we read what's coming in the next few chapters. We've read it before. In fact, if you have been keeping up with the Bible reading plan, then you've read this passage just a couple of weeks ago. You, you went through the Gospel of Mark fully here in these first couple of weeks of the year, so you, you know what's going to happen. We know that Jesus is on his way to the cross. In fact, 
As we've gone through this entire gospel of Mark, that's where this whole book has been progressing. We've been going to this point the whole time. As early, back in Mark chapter 3, do you remember? This is several semesters ago, but back in Mark chapter 3, we read about how the Pharisees began to plot to kill Jesus. In Mark 8.27, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And this question begins to just sit on our minds and sit on our hearts. And that's the question that everyone in the gospel of Mark is asking. Who is this Jesus? And then just last week, we saw the story progress. And Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, bringing us to our text today. And now we're going to see Jesus Jesus put on trial. Imagine that. The very Son of God... The righteous judge of all things is going to be subjected to the erroneous and unjust judgment of the people that he created. And this morning I want to come to our passage and I just want to sort of walk through it with you and we'll stop and make some observations along the way. And because we know this story so well, I want you to try and put yourself in the story as an observer watching this sort of unfair courtroom scene play out and reflecting on how it's this story that forms the very foundation of our own stories. It's this story that we're reading right now that gives our lives meaning and purpose. Our passage this morning, it contains just really one scene. I want to sort of take this scene and just go a couple verses at a time and reflect on things And I want to come to the end of the passage that's going to set up this gospel narrative. So let's look in Mark chapter 14. Begin with me in verses 53 and 54. And let's set the scene. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Really, just looking at this passage in sort of three movements, the first movement is just setting things up. We look here at the setting in these first couple verses. Let's figure out where we are. These last several hours in the Gospel of Mark have kind of been a blur. Things happen so quickly. You see, the night began with a quiet Passover meal that was shared together in the privacy of an upper room. There, Jesus observes Passover with his disciples. He washes their feet. Seems to be a quiet and a tender time. But then things things take a turn as Jesus shared with his disciples that one of them would betray him. Of course, this left the disciples thinking themselves, well, one of the twelve? One of us? Who would do such a thing? But then Jesus makes things even more serious. He says, well, one of you is going to betray me, but all of you are going to abandon me. And when Jesus said that, Peter had had enough. and He said, no, 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 Lord, I would die for you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says... Peter, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times before this night is over. And Peter's just incredulous, looking at Jesus like, 
why would you say that? I, I would die for you. And so as the night wore on, Jesus then takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he might pray. He goes there, he says, come on, disciples, we're going to go to the garden so that we might pray. And there in the garden, only Jesus has the fortitude to stay awake. And despite the pleas of Jesus, the disciples continue to fall asleep time after time rather than pray. And of course, if you're Peter, I would that Peter had just stayed awake. Would that Peter might have prayed and asked God to not let him fall into the temptation that was coming in just a few hours. But then we know what happens. The prayers stop as sort of this mob group approaches and Jesus is betrayed in the garden by Judas. And the ordinary affection of a kiss is replaced with the hostility of betrayal and Jesus is turned over to the guards of the Sanhedrin. And Peter at this point loses it. Peter chooses to fight with his sword only to have Jesus heal all of the wounds that he inflicts. The other disciples in that moment do exactly as Jesus had told them they would do, and they begin to run away. One of the disciples, as he runs away, one of the guards tries to grab him, leaving him naked, running away in shame, just as Jesus had told them just minutes and hours before. So within a matter of hours, this quiet Passover evening seems to have turned into a shocking and terrifying night. His closest friends have left him. You know, for the entire gospel of Mark, Jesus has been surrounded by these 12. Jesus has always been near to his disciples and his disciples have been near to him. But from here until the end, Jesus is going alone. And in verses 53 and 54 of our text, we're introduced to a few characters. Jesus is led to the house of the high priest. And there, waiting for Jesus, are the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. These were the 70 highest-ranking men in Jewish society. And of course, as we have read the Gospel of Mark, we know these are not new characters. Now, we've seen these guys before. These men have been lurking in the background, in the shadows, trying to to trick Jesus, to see if they can get him to break the law, trying to catch Jesus in some sort of a lie. But every time their attempts are frustrated, it's an amazing thing how Jesus frustrates their attempts each and every time. And then we read in verse 54 that Peter is nearby. The disciples fled, but at least one disciple continued to follow Jesus. But next week, we're going to see Peter's swift and sorrowful exit. But for now, the stage is set. We sort of see all of these groups coming together. Throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, we've been building to this very moment. And the setting is clear. And this leads us sort of to our second movement, or, the, or the, really the first major action of our scene in verses 55 through 59. Let's read those together. Beginning in verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. This is the second movement of our text. We see the setup. We've got the setting, now we've got the setup. And here in these verses, we enter this courtroom scene. The judge and the prosecution are the same individuals. The high priests, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they stand both as accusers and the judges. Now, in our American system of government, that seems very silly. Those are two distinct, different offices in the court of law here in America. But here, we, we, we see the lunacy of this, that the ones who are accusing would also be the ones who are judging. This is not a fair fight from the get-go. This is incredibly biased. We also see, in addition to the accusers, we see the defendant, Jesus, the one who is accused, the one who is standing trial. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment and think about what I just said. Consider the tremendous absurdity, the absolute incredible folly, the, the insanity of this moment. The divine Son of God who has existed in timeless perfection for eternity, the second person of the Trinity, perfectly holy and perfectly just, the Messiah who was sent in order to rescue his people, stands on trial and is subjected to the judgment of his own creation. And Jesus doesn't stop being sovereign in this moment. Jesus is sovereign over this council and is yet subjected to their foolishness and to their errors. This really is an appalling moment in history. And the tragedy and the magnitude of this moment shouldn't be lost on us. What we're seeing here, honestly, brothers and sisters, should shock us. That Jesus would stand on trial? We're told that the chief priests and the entire council of the Sanhedrin were seeking testimony against Jesus. But don't be mistaken here. These religious leaders, they're not concerned with finding the truth. Don't think that these guys are really concerned about finding the truth. No, they're more concerned about finding what they would deem reasonable grounds to put this man to death. They're not concerned with the truth. If they were, if they were concerned with the truth, they would be listening to Jesus. Jesus had said during his ministry, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They take no moment to pause and consider whether or not what Jesus is saying is true. They don't care about the veracity of his claims. They care about the power of their position. If we go all the way back to Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus... What, what, did, he, did he incite a political rebellion? Was he causing problems with the Romans? No. He healed a man. In Mark chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And it's in that moment that we read these haunting words. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. You see, since the opening chapters of Mark, these religious leaders cared nothing about Jesus. They cared nothing about whether or not what he was saying was true. No, they wanted to maintain their own influence. They wanted to maintain their own power. And so it seems that from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, they have contrived this idea. 
Their goal was to catch Jesus breaking the law so that they might put him to death, to get rid of him. And yet their plan has failed all throughout the gospel of Mark. Time after time, Jesus outwits and outmaneuvers them. These religious leaders were undoubtedly frustrated. You can imagine their angst and their fury. They're irritated. And so they came up with a plan to accomplish their goals through questionable means. They would hear the testimony of individuals. Now, did they go out and find individuals who had been there? Did they double-check sources? No, no. They, They went out and found anyone who they could in the middle of the night who would say something about Jesus that would condemn him. That's their plan. If they could just get enough, quote-unquote, witnesses to give credible testimony against him, then they would be able to sentence Jesus to death. You see, at this time, the Pharisees didn't have the power to, to do capital punishment, to kill Jesus. The Romans would have called that murder, and so they needed the Romans to say that Jesus was guilty of death in order for Jesus to die. But in order to do that, they had to come up with this overwhelming majority of people who would start a riot in order to make this happen. So we see this plan all coming together. But even as the Pharisees failed in their attempts to get Jesus all throughout the Gospel of Mark, it seems that they're beginning to fail here too. Look in verse 59. Even in this plot, even with all of this this contrived court, what do we read? Their testimony didn't agree. Their plot seemed to be falling apart. Why is it falling apart? Well, verses 56 and 57 tell us that witnesses were bringing false testimonies. The Greek word used here is pseudo-martyreo, literally pseudo-testimony or fake testimony. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the same exact word that's used in Exodus 20.16, the eighth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. That's exactly what we're doing. The the verb here in the text highlights just how ridiculous this entire courtroom scene really is. The most respected religious leaders of Israel are willing to break not just one of the commandments of the law, but one of the Ten Commandments en route to their goal of murdering Christ. This Christ who happens to be the Messiah that they had been waiting on for hundreds of years. Are you beginning to sense the the insanity of this moment? Do you feel like I do where you're saying, no, 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 stop. This is too crazy to continue. John Calvin said of the chief priests, he said, in seeking false witnesses, their treacherous cruelty is manifested. And when, after being disappointed of their expectation, they still do not desist. And this affords still a more striking display of their blinded obstinacy. See the cruelty, the evil, the hatred, the corruption of these so-called religious leaders is on full display. Their plot and their means are wicked to the core. Again, John Calvin writes, he says, amidst the darkness of their rage, the innocence of the Son of God shone so brightly that the devils themselves might know that Christ died innocent. This is the ultimate wickedness. And I don't know about you, but the rejection of Jesus that we see right here in the Gospel of Mark, it makes me sick to my stomach. 
It really is shocking to see the Lord Jesus rejected by his very own people. Jesus came to the earth and what did he do? He healed the sick. He preached the truth. He ministered to the hurting and his own people rejected him. And yet the rejection of the Pharisees is not so unlike the rejection of us all. We are all born into a rebellious state. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all reject Jesus without the Spirit's intervention in our lives. So for some of us here who are believers, the rejection of Christ by these Pharisees should bring a sense of humility in our hearts. Because we know that we too once rejected the Lord Jesus. There's no one in here who should claim to have it all figured out. There's no one in here who has any claim to say that they are superior over someone else because we are all equal. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This should humble us. But for us believers, this text should also, it should caution us. It should caution us about the reality of sin. You see, even if you are a believer, you still live with a flesh that wants to reject the Lord. And you say, well, well pastor, I don't, I don't reject the Lord with my... I, I know that God is triune. I, I know all the right things. How, how are you saying I reject the Lord? Do you know the answer to that question just as I do? When we choose lust over Christ, we reject the Lord. When we choose pride and gossip... When we choose to gamble our money, when we choose coarse joking and coarse language, that's rejecting God. That should caution each and every one of us. You see, these are all small fruits of rebellion that if are planted deep within our hearts will one day bear the fruits not of repentance, but they will bear the fruits of the enemy. There's a caution for us here that our flesh still wants us to rebel. Our flesh longs for that rebellion. We've got to be aware of our tendencies to rebel against Christ and to give ourselves over to sin. We have to look at Christ and say, you are far more magnificent than anything that this world has to offer me. But not only is it a caution for believers, it's a caution for unbelievers. For those here this morning who don't have relationship with Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees begs the question, why do you reject Jesus? What reason do you have to refuse the grace of God? What good does it do to deny the kindness of a loving Savior? This passage also applies to us in that it it reminds us of the reality That although Jesus here is the defendant in this unlawful courtroom, one day Jesus will stand as judge over all things. John 5.22, we're told, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And again, through the pen of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Those verses sit on your heart right now. 
Friends, whether you're a believer or not a believer, one day every single one of us will stand before God and we will all give an account of what we've done for the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, and the years of our lives. Have you stewarded the time that God has given you for His glory or your own? Verses like that give me a great pause. And certainly there's a way to be legalistic, but brothers and sisters, does that not make you consider your lives just a little bit? But perhaps, perhaps I'm not taking this as serious as I ought to. You're going to stand before God one day. I'm going to stand before God one day. Let that thought help you to live tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday. Let the thought of the judgment seat of Christ help you to live in obedience, not out of fear, but out of glory, because Christ is worth it. Are you ready for that? Verse 59 tells us that these attempts to bring charges against Jesus have failed. Of course, here I am in the story saying, could it be that Jesus could escape? Is there a back door that Jesus could sneak out of? In all of this commotion, could Jesus somehow once again outmaneuver and evade the attempts of these religious goons? How does this courtroom scene end? Let's read together verses 60 through 65. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The climax of our scene comes here. We see this showdown between the high priest and Jesus. And honestly, the biblical imagery here could be lost on us if we just hurry by these verses. Here we're reminded of the book of Hebrews where we see Jesus proclaimed as the great high priest, the mediator of an everlasting covenant between God and man. And with Hebrews in the back of our minds, we see this showdown between Israel's high priest and heaven's high priest. And the contrast could not be any greater. Calvin writes of this contrast beautifully. He says, the high priest was a figure of the only mediator between God and men. And those who sat along with him in the council represented the whole church of God. And yet, all of them unite in conspiring to extinguish the only hope of salvation. The high priest looks to Jesus. He stands up with seeming authority and questions Jesus incredulously. 
says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Stop for a moment here and just recognize the audacity and the pride of this high priest here. You know, if if I'm in the place of Jesus in this moment, of course I never would be because I'm not Jesus, but if I'm in the place of Jesus and I'm guiltless before this high priest, this high priest that I know the number of hairs on his head, I know where every single moment of his life, I know everything about him, I know the desires of his heart. If I'm Jesus in this moment, I'm going to clap back to him and I'm going to say, what, what do I have to say against this? What, what do you mean? What do I have to say against all of these lies? I made you. I have the power to destroy you. What, what do I have to say about these testimonies? What do you mean all these, all these false testimonies? These things that are breaking the eighth commandment? What do I have to say about this entire plan to catch me? I got nothing to say about it. I have no time to waste on you. But we don't see Jesus say any of that. In order to fulfill what Drew read earlier in Isaiah 53, 7, which reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In order to fulfill that verse, Jesus stood before these liars, and he stood silent. He made no effort to defend himself. He did not seek to vindicate his perfection and his holiness. He performed no sign. He performed no miracle to convince these religious leaders. No, he stood silent. But his silence didn't fit the agenda of the high priest. And so the high priest pressed Jesus for an answer. He asked him in almost an annoyed and furious tone. Do you read it there? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus, who is truth personified, answers in the only way he possibly can, truthfully. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has instructed his disciples to conceal his messianic identity. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has sought to hide the fact of his divinity until the right time. And now, after all of this time, the moment has come. The messianic secret is no longer a secret. Jesus confesses his divinity in the courtroom of the high priest. Let me just say, this confession here is bold. Did you read it? In the Greek, this confession is construed as an emphatic. Ego eimi. It would be like saying, I, I am. I can't help but reading this confession of Christ and being reminded of the name of the Lord that God gives to Moses in the Old Testament. We've just read in our Bible reading plan. When Moses asks God what his name is, he says, I am. And leaving no doubt, Jesus tells this group of religious leaders that no matter what happens, one day 
they will see him seated at the right hand of the Father. They will see him coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus did not seek to be acquitted because he knew that his hour had come. Everyone there in the courtroom of the high priest must have been shocked at such an honest response of Jesus. But you see, this confession of Christ is not just a confession. As I prepared this week, that's what stood out to me. That this confession that Jesus says that I am, this isn't just a confession, it's a revelation. Do you notice that there's grace and, and mercy right here? That there's grace that Jesus would reveal his identity to these sinners. That even in this moment, this confession is enough for the Pharisees to repent and believe. Jesus himself stands them face to face. I don't know how many of you have had Jesus come to you face to face and reveal the gospel to you. But they did. This is a grace and a merciful revelation from God. But how would these religious leaders respond to this gracious revelation? We see three responses by three characters in our closing verses. And in our final minutes together, I want to look at these three responses to the revelation of God as we consider how we should respond to the revelation of God. In verse 63, we read that the high priest tears his garment and he calls out for the condemnation of Christ. You see, the high priest has finally reached his goal. He's finally found the evidence that he needs to condemn Jesus. And yet he in no way asks himself at any point whether or not Jesus might be actually telling the truth. In verse 64, the rest of the religious leaders condemn Jesus as well, and they call for his death. Following the leadership of the high priest, these religious leaders begin to form a mob that will eventually call for the crucifixion of Christ in due time. They too conclude that there is enough evidence to kill this man. And then in verse 65, the religious leaders and the guards, they begin to spit upon Jesus and to punch him in the face and to mock him. In our final verse, both the religious leaders as well as the guards begin to physically assault Jesus, to mock him. And the stripes and the scars that we read about in Isaiah 53, these wounds that he would wear are beginning to be incurred at this point. Honestly, guys, this entire scene is really difficult to stomach. It's difficult to watch unfold. But the responses of these characters in this story remind us what rebellion looks like. It reminds us of the severity of sin. And yet, I'm I'm sure that here this morning... There are some who do not need a reminder of what rebellion looks like. You see, some of you are living in a state of rebellion right now. Some of you might openly reject Christ. You're here just to check things out and we're glad you are, but you just say, I I really don't want to have anything to do with this. But perhaps there's even more of you here who claim the name of Christ. But if you were to take a step back and to look at your life, nothing about you is owned by Christ. Nothing in your life has Christ stamped upon it. You look just as much like the world as everyone else does. You're living in open rebellion even now with the way that you live. And yet to to both sets of individuals, if you stand here in rebellion to Christ, 
The message is the same. There's grace for you right now. That today is the day of salvation. That you can walk out of these doors having your eternity secured once and for all. Now let me plead with you, brothers and sisters, we, we give this call week after week. We plead with you to give your life to Christ, even if you don't really know. Even if you're not sure. Why would you chance eternity? We say every week, come and see one of the pastors at the back of the room. Some of you here need to do that this morning. Some of you here need to come and talk with us because your eternity is on the line. Don't leave here this morning without knowing whether or not you're going to spend eternity with God. Have this settled in your heart and mind. Today is the day of salvation. I plead with you. We want you to come and talk to us. We'll have pastors and our wives at the back of the room ready to receive you. I plead with you, come and receive Christ. He's the only hope that we have in life and death. Would you receive Him today? Still, I think this passage also speaks to Christians too. For some here, although you're a Christian, you still fall into rebellion. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've lived your life really more so in a state of rebellion than faithfulness this week. Whether it be neglecting your time with the Lord, whether it be living in open and unrepentant sin before God, let me just tell you, brother and sister, the grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you. And perhaps as we take communion today, you need to just bow your head before God and ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to remove the rebellion in your heart to help you to turn from that familiar sin and make it not familiar anymore. And to fill you with His Spirit so that you might grow in grace. For others this morning, I think that this passage teaches us comfort. I think that reflecting on the rebellion of the Pharisees might remind you of the former rebellion in your own life. And perhaps you think back with tears in your eyes on the ways that you were once rebellious to God. And many of us can think back to the ways in our own lives about how we've hurt others, how we've rebelled against God, how we lived our lives only for ourselves and for no one else. You see, church, no one here is perfect. No one here has it all figured out. But we do know that our only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, some of us just need to pause and during communion reflect and praise God in thanksgiving for the way that He's rescued us. You see, that's what this passage is ultimately all about. It's about God saving those who are the most rebellious toward Him. Me and you. It's about saving for Himself a people. And here on this tragic night, what we see, this is amazing. What we see here is that the will of the Pharisees and the will of the Father are actually the same, though they have vastly different motives. You see, Mark 3, 6 tells us that the will of the Pharisees was to destroy Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7, as we mentioned, tells us that Jesus stood silent before his accusers. But just a few verses later in Isaiah 53, 10, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It 
It's the will of the Father to crush the Son. That brings tears to my eyes that Jesus would endure such suffering for me. You see, the Pharisees sought to destroy Jesus for personal gain, but it was the will of the Father to crush His one and only Son so that Jesus might bear our iniquities and set us free. You see, the main point of this entire story is that Jesus' guilty verdict before a corrupt human courtroom paves the way for sinners to be declared righteous in the courtroom of Almighty God. Everything that happens in this courtroom is paving the way for us to experience justification, for us to be able to put our faith in Christ and to be saved from our sins, for the debt of our sin to be canceled. You see, we know how this story goes. We know where this is all headed. Jesus has begun the unenviable journey to a cross-laden hill called Golgotha where He will be nailed to a cross to die. And even though I know where this is all going, I find myself hoping that somehow, some way, the story might turn in some other direction. That Jesus might somehow escape. Because after all, Jesus does not deserve this. Jesus does not deserve to die. This is such a tragedy that Jesus is being sentenced to death. And every time I read these gospel accounts, something inside of me screams out, no, this can't be happening. Isn't there some other way? But of course, there is no other way. And that is the beautiful tragedy of the cross. That even as my mind longs for the story to end in some other way, my heart knows that if any of us are to be saved from our sins, it's because Jesus stood in a courtroom of liars and He took the condemnation that we deserve. Let's pray.